Well, good morning to all of you. If you would open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I have uh, several things to say by way of greeting, but um, if you'll allow me, I'm going to save that for the, for the second hour. Your pastor told me I had 30 minutes, and I'm going to do my very best to stay in that, that window. So if you'll allow me to, to hold those off till, till a little bit from now. This letter that Paul has written is to the church that is in a city, Ephesus. Ephesus was a, a wealthy, metropolitan kind of town. It was full of business and trade and education. I thought this was um, a lot like what San Diego is to hillbilly like me, you know, coming out here, this, this big city. That's what Ephesus was like. And the, the whole city was given over to idolatry. There was a magnificent building that they built there to the goddess Diana, and it was kind of like the center of that idol worship of, of the d- goddess Diana. And the whole city was given over to it. The, the economy, everything hinged around this worship of, of Diana. After the Apostle Paul had been there preaching, the silversmiths of the town got together, and they're trying to find a way to get rid of this guy because so many people believed on the Christ that Paul was preaching. The silversmith's business was hurt. Fewer people are buying these silver um, idols and so forth of Diana. And big uproar about this because this is affecting our pocketbook. And uh, you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. But I just point that out to say how, how central this idolatry was to this town of, of Ephesus. But in the middle of this large, idolatrous, worldly city, Almighty God had hidden away some of his elect in the middle of that city. And a large, very blessed church grew up in that city, much like here in the middle of this, this city. Go, looks to me like it's all one giant city. We go from place to place, and Kimberly says, well, now we're in this city. Now we're in the, I mean, you know, at, at home, you have a city, then there's a break, there's country. And then, there's, you know, you can tell when you go from one city to there. Here, it just looks like all one giant city to me in the middle of this large metropolitan area. God's reserved some people for himself and called them out. That's what happened at Ephesus. And you remember before the Apostle Paul went to Rome, where he was sure that he would be put to death, he called together the Ephesian elders. Remember those, those great words he had for, for those men? Well, those, that was a pretty good-sized group of men from this large, very respected, uh, blessed church. But if you look over Revelation chapter 2, the very last thing that we read about in scripture about the church at Ephesus is when the Lord had wrote those seven letters to the to the churches and he wrote sent a letter to the church at Ephesus and told him I I know your works you haven't quit haven't quit your works I, I know your your doctrine is straight and you hadn't quit he said but I got something against you you've left your first love now it seems like this church had remained doctrinally straight but they left love, a tenderness for Christ, and a tenderness for the gospel. Look at Revelations 2, verse 5. The Lord says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now, when the Lord said he would remove the candlestick, we know from the rest of the book that the candlesticks represent the pastor. He said, I'm going to take the the pastor out of that place so the gospel won't be preached there anymore. And notice the Lord didn't say, I'm going to extinguish the candle. 
He said, I'm going to move it. I'm going to move the candlestick from one place to another. I'm going to raise up a pastor in a different place. The Lord's not going to leave himself without a witness. He's going to move the candlestick. Robert Hawker said on that that the candlestick is a movable piece of furniture that can be moved around the house. And that's what the Lord had warned the church at Ephesus that he would do there. So I point that out. We've seen how the church at Ephesus started. We've seen the, the very last thing written in Scripture about them. I think it's good for us to keep this in mind and pray that not only does the Lord keep us doctrinally straight, we have to be doctrinally straight. No, nobody can be saved apart from the truth that the Lord keep us faithful. We ought to be faithful, shouldn't we? But that the Lord also keep us tenderhearted, loving Christ, loving the, the gospel, because we know how dependent we are on him. I think when we leave our first love, one of the big problems is we've forgotten how dependent we are on the Lord every second of every day. I've seen people who become so taken up with knowing sound doctrine. I know sound doctrine and somebody else doesn't that they seem to depend on their knowledge of sound doctrine instead of knowing Christ and believing Christ. I think that's a, that's a good warning to us because when that happens, that's when the Lord's going to move the candlestick from one place to another. So that's the people that Paul's writing to, the church that he's writing to. In, in verse 1, he, he begins his letter, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul says he's writing this letter to the saints, the saints which are at Ephesus. Now, every believer is a saint, every believer. It's not just a, a, a few, you know, who did some spectacular things, that worked some miracles or something, you know, in their life. Every believer is a saint. We don't vote on you after you die to decide whether or not you did enough to be a saint or not. That's not how you become a saint. Matter of fact, if you're not a saint before you die, you sure aren't going to be one after. Every believer is a saint right now, right now. And the word saint, it means a holy one, one who's separated to God and one who's worthy of veneration. I don't think any of us would raise our hands and say, yep, that's me. <laughs> none of us are holy in ourselves. And none of us are worthy of, of veneration by nature. So here's my question, and this is the, the, the question I want to answer this morning, is how does a person become a saint? How does a person become a saint? I titled the, the lesson, The Saints of God. I have three or four points on this. Number one is this. A person is the saint of God by the will of God. In verse 1, Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I'm an apostle, and we're all saints, by the will of God. Now, this is one thing we got to get down. All of salvation comes from and is dependent upon the will of God. Salvation is not a choice that man makes. Preacher is wasting his time. You'll notice you're never, your pastor never takes the time to try to talk you into doing something because salvation is not the will of man. It's not the doing of man. Salvation is a choice that God made and a work that God performs both for us and in us. First of all, saints become saints by the will of God when the Father, by his will, 
chose a people unto salvation. God chose a people, and it was his will that those people become saints. Look at verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So how do sinners become saints, holy ones? It's by the will of God. You who believe Christ, you were made holy when the Father puts you in Christ in divine election. When he puts you in Christ and not in yourself, not in Adam, not in your works, but in Christ. Everyone who's in Christ is holy. Paul said, and when he wrote to the church at Corinth, chapter 1, verse 2, he said he was writing to them who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's how we're made holy, by being in Christ, because he is our holiness. Our holiness, then, is the will and doing of God, isn't it? When the Father chose us and put us in Christ. Second, sinners are made saints. Now, the Father chose us. But boy, we're born in this world sinful, aren't we? Scripture says dead in trespasses and sins. Well, how am I going to be a saint with all those sins on me? Something's got to be done about that sin, doesn't it? So second, we're made saints when Christ died for us and washed our sin away. Look over at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. And that word holy translated there is the same word translated saint back in our text. The only way any of us can be holy is if the Son of God took our sin and died for us to put our sin away. If Christ didn't put our sin away, it's just obvious. I can't be a saint because my sin's still on me. But if Christ took it away, it's gone forever. And that's how we're made saints of God, when Christ washed our sins away. All right, third, look at Titus chapter 3. Sinners are made saints. When God the Holy Spirit causes a new holy nature to be born in us, Titus 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He did all the work. He did all the work of salvation. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, this could be a shocking statement to some people, but holiness is not how you act. It's not how you act. Holiness is a nature, a nature that can never sin. And that holy nature can only be in us if God the Holy Spirit causes it to be born in us through the incorruptible seed, the Word of God. You know, our nature is determined by the seed, isn't it? You know why I'm a sinner? Because of the seed of my father. As much as I loved him, much as I respected him, he's a sinful man. And the only nature he had to pass on to me was a sinful nature. Well, God's people, Scripture says, are born from the seed of the Word of God. This seed is holy. It's perfect. It's sinless. 
Well, then it can only produce a nature that's perfect and holy and sinless, can it? The only way that nature can be born in us is by the will and doing of God the Holy Spirit, causing that nature to be born in us through the preaching of God's Word. Now, we still have an old nature of sin, don't we? When God causes us to be born again, that old nature is unchanged. God doesn't take that old nature and change it and make it any better. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It'll only ever be sinful, dead flesh. That's all it can be. But thank God, he willed to give his people a second nature, a new, holy nature. And someday, when these bodies die, till, till then, those two natures are going to war and fuss and fight against each other, aren't they? Someday, when this body dies, flesh is going to go back to, into the ground, back to the dust from whence it was made. And that new man is finally going to be set free from this clay prison. And it's that new man born of God who's going to go directly into the presence of God Almighty. Now you get a hold of that. <laughs> that's how God makes his people saints. And that, that's why I said, if you're not a saint before you die, you're not going to be one after. It's that nature that God made a saint that's going to leave here and directly go into the presence of God. You think of that. That's how sinners made a saint. All right, number two, a person is a saint by faith in Christ. Paul says that the Ephesians 1, verse 1, he's writing to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, every believer who's been made holy in Christ, they trust Christ. Saving faith, just in, in its, the most simplest way you can say it, is trusting Christ. Trusting Christ to be everything the Father requires of me. Trusting Christ to be everything that I need. And here's how I can tell if I trust Christ. I don't feel like i got to add anything to him. He's enough. I just trust him. For the believer, Christ is our holiness. And we're not looking for another hope. I don't want another hope. All I want is Christ. Looking to him, that's the only assurance I need. I'm not looking for any other signs of assurance. I just want, I just trust Christ. Just that saving faith. Now we say a believer is holy. Here's something only a saint can understand. A saint is holy, but we don't see anything holy in ourselves. I can't look at myself and see something holy because it's not there. But they trust that they're holy. You know why they trust they're holy? Because God said so. That's faith. Faith just believe in God, isn't it? A saint is a saint by faith. It's not because you understand everything in this book. It's not that you understand how and why God's doing everything he's doing. It's just belief in God. I mean, we have, my wife and I have two daughters, and when they were, were real little, they didn't understand almost anything their daddy was doing but it was all right by them. They just trusted daddy. They just trust. It's the same way for a believer. We don't understand all the mysterious workings of God that go into this thing we call salvation. We don't understand how God could love us. If you do, take a step back. A, a saint does not understand how, how could God love me? I don't understand the mystery of the new birth. 
God caused a new nature to be born in me? How can I be one person in two natures? I, I, I can't explain that. I don't understand the Trinity. How can God be one God in three persons? I don't understand God. I do not understand his nature. I don't understand what he's doing and, and why he's doing it. But I tell you what, I sure do trust him. I sure do trust him. I don't understand all these, these mysteries of, of the scripture, but by God's grace, I sure do believe them. I sure do love them. A saint doesn't have to understand it. There is a great article in today's bulletin, uh, Brother Donnie Bell, about asking God questions. I, I agree with Brother Donnie. I don't have any questions for God. But I sure do believe him. If he told me, I couldn't understand anyway. <laughs> I just believe him. And I tell you the thing about saints. Every saint is going to keep believing God all the way to the end. I know our faith won't be perfect, but every saint is going to keep believing God all the way to the end. They're not going to have any other hope but Christ because nothing else is worth believing. And I tell you why they're going to keep believing to the end. And this will take some pressure off of you. Why is a believer going to believe all the way to the end? If you believe Christ right now, you're not going to quit. I can promise you that. You know how I can promise you that? It's not because your strength. It's because of the strength of the Savior. He said, my people are in my hand. And no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. And what I find most comforting about that, no man, it's not just no enemy can pluck me out of Christ's hand. The fellow I worry about the most is me. He won't let me jump out either. That's why you're going to keep believing to the end. Because God won't let you quit. He won't let you go. I, I'll, I'm going to get out. Kimberly, I'm going to get out of my half hour. I beg Kevin's forgiveness. I'll use this illustration. We, uh, when my youngest daughter, Savannah, she was, she was two years old. We were going to church one morning, heavy, heavy snow. There had been some ice and some heavy, heavy snow. And uh, we were walking in into the church building, and, and I was holding her hand. We were walking across. You know, they'd scraped a lot, but uh, if you've never seen a lot like that, it's been scraped by the, the snow. There's still ice and stuff on it, you know. We're carefully walking across there. I'm holding her hand. And this little two-year-old looks up at me, and she says, Don't worry, Daddy. I won't let go. Well, that's good. But her hope of making it across that ice was not her letting go. It was that I won't let go. By God's grace, I'm not letting go. I mean, honestly, my heart can truthfully say this. Father, I'm not letting go. But that's not my hope of salvation. It's that he won't let go of me. All right, here's the third thing. A person is a saint by the grace of God. Paul says in verse 2, Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now grace, it's the free, undeserved, unearned favor of God. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Well, what don't we deserve? Any blessing from God. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve the new birth. We don't deserve to be given faith in Christ. We don't deserve...
for God to keep us. What we deserve is eternal damnation. But God saves his elect anyway, even though we don't deserve it. In spite, not because of our works, in spite of our works. I think that is such a, a good definition of grace. God saves us anyway. And that salvation is all of grace. It's none by works and all by grace. Look at verse 8 over in chapter 2 of Ephesians. For by grace, by grace, by grace, by grace. Can we get this through our heads? By grace are you saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And in case you don't understand what that means, he says in verse 9, not of works. <laughs> Lest any man should boast. Now here's the thing that makes grace so glorious and so comforting to God's people. Salvation by God's grace makes salvation sure. God does not and he cannot show grace at the expense of his justice. In order to be gracious to his people and give them what they don't deserve, God had to give Christ our substitute what we deserve. And in return, he gave us what the Lord Jesus Christ, our federal head, earned for us. Now that's grace. Grace, by God's grace, justice is satisfied. Christ died to satisfy God's justice so that God could give us what we don't deserve. So not only is God's salvation gracious, it's just. It can't be reversed. Isn't that gracious? Isn't that comforting and thrilling to, to your heart? The fact, and here's, here's the thing. Oh, if God will set this in our hearts, we won't leave our first love. The fact that the Father would slaughter his only begotten son as a sacrifice for my sin. I know he died for a number no man can number, but I'm thinking now just about me. You think just about you. The fact that the Father would slaughter his son in the most horrible, most shameful way possible as a sacrifice for my sin so that he could be gracious to me and give me what I could never earn. That's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And it's not a fairy tale. It's true. <laughs> oh, that's what God has done for all of his saints so they could be his saints. Isn't that something? See what I said? God set that in our heart. We won't leave our first love, will we? Oh. And here's the last thing. I've I got to give you this before we, before we close. We've seen how a person is made a saint. And the fourth thing is this. A saint has peace with God. At the end of verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the order of things here first. First is grace. Then peace. Peace is the result of God's grace. Grace is the foundation of our salvation. Grace, God's grace is the foundation of every blessing that we enjoy from God. And peace is the fruit of it. Peace with God is the fruit of it. This grace and peace comes to us, Paul says, from our Lord Jesus Christ, from who he is and what he's accomplished for his people. Do you know why God's saints have peace with God? Because the blood of Christ put away the sin that made God angry. 
and there's peace. If Christ died for you, God has no reason to be angry with you. When trials come our way, don't think God's punishing you, because he's not. He already punished Christ for your sin. He's not punishing you for him, too. Now, he's teaching you something. He's weaning you from something, but he's not punishing you. He already punished Christ for us. He has, the Father has absolutely no reason to be upset with you if Christ died for you. That's why we have peace with God. And when that same blood of Christ's sacrifice is applied to our hearts, and that's what the new birth is. When it talks about the blood of sprinkling, the blood is applied to our hearts, it's a new birth. When there's a new nature birthed in us, when the blood of Christ is applied to our hearts, we're not mad at God anymore either. Now, by nature we are, aren't we? The carnal mind's enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. But when God applies the blood of Christ to our hearts, we willingly surrender. Brother Henry Mahan used to say, we stack our shotguns and willingly submit to Christ. And there's peace. And that peace is peace which passes all understanding. I'm going to give you something about peace. It's true from what I read about in Scripture. It's true from my experience. And if you don't need it this very minute, file it away because you're going to need it. The peace that God gives his people is not peace that comes as a result of God removing the trial. We have, we're undergoing a trial. There, there's pain. There's heartache. There's disappointment. There's, there's anxiety because we don't know what's going to happen. When God gives his people peace, it's not removing those things that cause you pain. It's not removing the trial. It's giving you peace even though the trial's as bad as it ever was. That peace is more precious. It's more valuable than peace that comes from removing the trial. Does that make sense? I hope it does. It's a, it's, it, that has been a, a, a great blessing to me and um, to have experienced it. And this is just my advice. You get this for free. When the Lord puts you in the midst of it, and if you're his, he will. He will. Not because he's mad at you, but because he loves you. In this world, you shall have tribulation. And you know why? Because tribulation worketh patience. See, these trials are sent to increase our faith, to increase our dependence on Christ. When the Lord sends a trial, almost never will it be over quickly. Now, pray that the Lord deliver you. Absolutely pray that the Lord deliver you from the trial. But also pray this. In the meantime, Lord, give me grace sufficient for this trial. Give me some moments of peace right now. Get, will the Lord end every trial? No, he won't. There's some, something's going to come. It's going to kill this body and take us home, isn't it? But will the Lord give you grace sufficient? He promised he would. <laughs> Then I tell you, if we want the Lord to answer our prayer, pray what the Lord promised. <laughs> He'll do that, won't he? All right. Well, I don't know if I went over half hour or not, but I hope the Lord bless that to you.